Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got a full house for today's Spirit in Action visit because we'll be talking not with one person but with three. And the topic is Journeys in Palestine Toward Liberation. And the way we're going to get there is by hearing stories of a Palestinian, an Israeli, and by a staff member of the American Friends Service Committee. We hope to hear human stories and perspectives about which we too often hear only political diatribes. This is a follow-up to an event I attended last summer, guided by Lucy Duncan, director of AFSC's Friends Relations Program, and our panel participants include Dalit Baum and Sandra Tamari. If there is any hope for this troubled area of the world, it will be because we get to know and understand one another by listening to one another's stories. We'll get all three of our guests on the line, and we'll give you a more complete intro to the individuals in just a moment. Lucy, Dalit, and Sandra, it's so wonderful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, thank you, Mark. I'm excited to be here. Really a pleasure. Of course, I've had your acquaintance before at last year's and in July 2017. You were all three on stage with one other person for a plenary at the Friends General Conference gathering that was in Niagara Falls. This is an audience of maybe a, a thousand Quakers or so. What led to it? So 2017 was AFSC's centennial. We were 100 years in 2017. We have a pretty collaborative relationship with FGC and talked with them fairly early about the possibility of having a plenary that would be celebrating that 100 years. And in conversations about what we thought we might focus on, focusing on Palestine and Palestinian liberation, but also emphasizing the connections of that with other movements seem to be a really important focus for us. And so I was sort of given some leeway about what that might look like and had worked with Sandra and Delete a few years ago when they presented at the corporation meeting telling their stories. It had been incredibly moving and I talked with Sandra and Delete and they said, that's a great idea. Let's also invite Saed Achen to present with us. And so we reached out to Saed and spent a weekend in St. Louis telling stories to one another that became the basis for what was presented at the FGC gathering, which I think was incredibly powerful and I think opened a lot of hearts and educated a lot of people about the issues, both in terms of personal stories, but also the historical trajectory of what's been going on there. So I think it was incredibly powerful. It was a great honor to work with all three of them and wonderful to get to be a part of that. Is this something that's also being taken out to the public as well? There was something, oh, I don't know what it was, 10 years ago or something here. Jerusalem Women Speaking is what the event was called. And it had three different women, one Christian, one Jewish, one Muslim, all from that area, talking, sharing their stories. So this is similar. Are you carrying this out to the public? 
Well, here's one way. (laughs) I think all three of them are open to another invitation and to figuring out how we might do this again. It's also really important to emphasize that though, obviously, Delita's Israeli and Sandra's Palestinian, that we were really clear that we were approaching this as a co-resistance model, that everybody was very clear about where we stand in terms of Palestinian liberation and working in solidarity. And so, so although those different, obviously different identities, there's real clear unity around what we're trying to support in terms of Palestinian liberation. Well, would you do me the favor of introducing each of them, give a little bit of background, which, of course, you know extensively, having worked with them for quite a while, and then I'd like to hear all three of you speak. All right, sounds good. I'm going to introduce Sandra first. Sandra Tamari lives in St. Louis, outside of St. Louis. She currently works at Adala, which is a human rights organization that works for the rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel. She's worked for years with the Palestinian Solidarity Committee in St. Louis, and they had a huge win with divesting from Veolia a few years ago that was made national news. It was a very, very big and important campaign, learned to work across movements in order to do that. And then when Mike Brown was murdered, the Palestine Solidarity Committee was on the ground from the very beginning there. And Sandra's been really, really supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement and building connections between movements in order to work for liberation across these different issues, across oppressions. Um, And she also serves on the steering committee of the Campaign for Palestinian Rights and is a really dear friend, and I'm always honored to work with her. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much, Lucy. I'll go ahead and introduce Delete. Delete is uh, Israeli and serves AFSC as our director of economic activism, and that focuses on boycott divestments and sanctions and economic activism directed for Palestinian human rights, but she also works across issues. So she works on divestment from private prisons and is building out ways and research to investigate immigrants and has started a website called Investigate, which is at afsc.org slash investigate which is research about companies and their profiting from the oppression of people across these different issues. Delete is also the co-founder of Who Profits, which is an organization that has been researching companies who have been profiting from the occupation and giving real details about those companies and campaigns are often built from that research. She also teaches feminism and democracy, has been a lecturer and has been working for FSC since 2013 and also is a dear friend and I'm also really honored to get to work with her in this way. And I'm so glad you could be here too, Delete. (laughs) Thank you so much, Mark and Lucy. I think there's portions of your stories you want to share. How would you like to do this? So I think we're going to try and have a conversation among the three of us, but we would encourage you, if you have a question, just break in and add your question if there's something that you want to know more about. And before you start speaking, how about if I provide some surprise messaging here, too? Can I say happy Valentine's to all of you? Happy (laughs) Valentine's Day to all of you and to the whole world, and specifically the Middle East. I would love to see love grow there, whichever way that can be accomplished. Yeah, we have a social media campaign today where we're sending love and Valentine's to Gaza. So if you want to join in, that would be great. We're trying to get it to be trending. So lots of love is going to Gaza. 
So let's start with sort of more the beginning and some background and some stories about what's going on in Israel-Palestine that gives real context and historical context. And it's really not possible to really understand the present situation unless we really look at the history. And you both obviously have a connection with that longer history. And obviously, AFSC has been involved in working for Palestinian rights since 1948 when we were supporting refugees in Gaza. So it'd be great to talk about the founding of Israel, but also of what Palestinians call the Nakba, which was the catastrophe and the beginning of being displaced and dispossessed from their lands. So it'd be great to hear some stories. And Sandra, why don't you start? So thank you, Lucy. Yes, the Nakba is a major point of departure for Palestinians In 1947-1948, the Palestinians experienced trauma on the level that only people that have been expelled from their homes can identify with. It was a period of time marked by great violence, lots of fear. Over 500 Palestinian villages were destroyed by Jewish militias at this time. My personal experience with the Nakba comes through my father-in-law who in uh, 1948 was 27 years old. He lived in his parents' home in the city of Yaffa, which is a city on the coast on the Mediterranean, which is just south of Tel Aviv, present-day Tel Aviv. It was a very cosmopolitan Palestinian city. It was known for trade. It was known for its openness. My father-in-law's name was Elias. He came from a Christian family. His father was a prosperous business person, And uh, they came from landowning families. So they had a kind of an idyllic life in some ways. When we look at photos of that period, it reminds me a lot of Downton Abbey. It doesn't have the same kind of maybe the stereotypes that many people think of, of uh, Palestinians from that era. A lot of the photos that we see of this period are of people fleeing. But uh, Elias left his home in a car. He was the oldest of three children. He woke up on Palm Sunday, soon after the village of Deir Yassin near Jerusalem had experienced a massacre carried out by Jewish militia. The city of Jaffa had been attacked by the Orgon gang, and uncle came to the house and said, we're leaving, we have to leave, we're experiencing a siege. The city is being bombarded, there are sniper attacks, we can't go out safely, we're heading to Ramallah which is in the West Bank, where they had family. And Elias's parents were very hesitant. They didn't want to leave the house. But Elias somehow convinced them, we'll go for a short period of time. Don't take our winter coats. We'll be back in 15 days. Those 15 days turned into almost 70 years for my father-in-law, who passed away a few years ago. This year marks the 70th year of that catastrophe of the Nakba. Palestinians like Elias, uh, millions of them await return and, you know, have the keys to their homes and wonder when they'll be able to be back. Have you visited Yaffa since then? Have you been able to visit? Well, gladly, yes. I was able to visit. In 2009, we invited Elias, my father-in-law, to visit us and come. We had been living in Beirut and we wanted to go to Palestine after, and he joined us. We took a car from Ramallah to Yaffa and, you know, as a way of having a chance for him to see things again. He had a lot of difficulty entering the country. He was 87 years old at the time. 
We crossed in through Jordan, and he was strip-searched by the Israelis coming in. His interrogator was an American citizen who was 18, 19 years old. And I remember being struck by how Yes was cordial to him the whole time and said, oh, you don't live far from where I live in West Virginia. You should come by and have coffee with me sometime. And this was always his spirit, infinite hospitality, even for the person who was interrogating him. I remember at the time we were thinking, you know, how does this 19-year-old have so much power to decide if this man who was born here and lived the first 27 years of his life decide, you know, whether he gets to go back or not. But we did go to Yaffa, and we ended up at the pharmacy of a Palestinian who had stayed. About 100,000 Palestinians stayed on the land, and they have grown to become 20% of the population. So 20% of Israeli citizens are Palestinian. They experience extreme inequities. There are over 50 Israeli laws that discriminate against them. Yaffa has become a very sad city, underdeveloped. It doesn't receive the same kinds of investments from the government that other cities do because it's an Arab city. But we did, we were able to take Elias there. And when he saw his friend at the pharmacy, he said, where's the house? Is it still there? And he said, yes, it's there. You can go in. And we walked down the streets and he walked through the door of his home. It had been turned into a rehab center for drug addicts. He spoke kindly in his very cordial way to the person running the center. And she just looked at him and said, you lived here. When did you live here? He said, a long time ago. And she didn't pursue the conversation after that. I think you know, there was a realization of when that was. And if I could just ask, one of the issues I know that is being advocated for is the right of return. He was able to go visit his home, but he can't go back there. He doesn't own it anymore. How How is that set up legally? I mean, he was able to go visit, though. He was able to go visit because he had the privilege of being a U.S. citizen. He was able to visit as a tourist. He was not able to live there. Um, his home was never returned to him. It was taken by the state and turned into this uh, state-run facility. So he does not own that home. It's interesting to try and, and compare it from our side. I'm an Israeli, I'm a Jew, and all of my grandparents left Europe before World War II, but left vast families behind that were killed in the Holocaust. But some of them were able to go back and reclaim their property. I know that historical comparisons are many times very wrong, but it's just important to note that the fact that people leave during a time of war because they run away from violence and they want to save their lives does not forfeit their property or their right to return or their citizenship. It doesn't happen that way. They have rights. So the fact that my own country, Israel, has decided to take over people's property, even people who did not run away, by the way, people who were just left home to another town, their property is not, uh, is not returned to them until now, which is unjust. So, Delete, I would love for you to tell, you know, a little bit about your family and, and if you have experiences <laughs> in Yaffa. <laughs> yeah, well, we call Yaffa Yafo, in the same city that in English is referred to as Jaffa. And it is now part of the city of Tel Aviv, where I spend most of my adult life. This is, this is my city. This is my town. 
I actually live not that far from there, and I'm kind of wondering where I was when Sandra was visiting with Elias. It's kind of funny. I, I lived not far from Jaffa, in the, in the south of Tel Aviv, in a neighborhood that also my mother used to live in back in 1948. And she always told us this story about how she had to leave her house in my street <laughs> because they were shooting at them from the mosque. The near mosque, there, was a, there, is, there is a mosque close by called Hassan Bek. And so they were also displaced for the time of the war. After the war, they came back, of course, and they had their property. <laughs> Nobody said, you are no longer citizens. <laughs> In very different situations. So I started asking some questions when I grew a little older. It's, it's, it's perfectly possible to grow up in Israel and know nothing. You live in the exact same place where things happened so recently and people are still alive and the refugees are still in refugee camps and longing to return home and, and you're probably walking through their homes and you know nothing. Some of the stories are from my grandfather and his sister. My grandfather Itzhak and his sister Devorah, both of them are already not with us, but they both were members of the same militia that Sandra has told us about. They were members of the Irgun. At the time, it was considered a terrorist group by the British authorities. You know, Palestine was under British uh, control. And they were bombing civilians and planting bombs in bus stations and shooting at Palestinian workers going to work. And they were a terrorist group. But their great moment of pride was actually taking over Jaffa. And my father always bragged about participating in the occupation of Jaffa. Now, just some historical context, Jaffa was supposed to be part of the Palestinian state. When the United Nations decided on partitioning of the land, they have decided that Tel Aviv, the Jewish city that started out as a little neighborhood of Jaffa, will be part of the Jewish state, while Jaffa, which was the main port of the country and a very important commercial city, will remain a city in the Palestinian state. It would be two states. But that Jewish militia, the Irgun, wouldn't have it. They wanted to get rid of that Palestinian city stuck in the middle of where they wanted to have their Jewish country. And very, very close to Tel Aviv, so they saw that as a risk. And what they did was to start a, a militia campaign of bombardment of Manshie, which was a neighborhood in between Jaffa and Tel Aviv. And it, it is actually where I live now. I have an apartment in Old Manshia. I knew nothing about this neighborhood because it doesn't exist anymore. So I looked for information about it and I found out that this was a neighborhood that had 12,000 people, but it was joint. Palestinians and Jews lived there together, including my mother. And it had cafes on the beach, and it had a synagogue, and it had a mosque, and it had restaurants, and it had hotels. It was a very nice place on the beach. Now most of it was transformed into a park. It's called the Charles Claw Park. It's a place where I used to take like walks on the beach and never even think that there used to be a neighborhood underneath it. One of the moments when I actually realized what I'm walking on <laughs> was when I was invited to a memorial service to my great-aunt, Devorah. She was 102 when she died, so there was a memorial for her at the Irgun Museum. The museum for that Jewish militia is actually today in the one last standing house of that neighborhood, in the middle of that park. So you see this old Palestinian house, and on top of it, some, some modern construction of, of glass. So it's like the old and the new. And when you walk in, there is a whole museum about how Manshia and Jaffa 
were conquered by the Irgun by going from house to house and putting bombs on the outside and then going into people's houses and breaking the walls in between houses. And, and there was a whole of de- description there of how the militia has managed that and terrorizing people of outside Jaffa by constant bombardment and by also siege until the people who were stuck inside, long after, I guess, Elias's family left, were forced to leave and uh, to flee. A few people remained behind and they were kind of put in a, I would say, a ghetto or a containment camp after the war. Most people have escaped and, and the last stages of this grand escape from Jaffa, a city that had almost 100,000 residents, very big at the time. The last stages were hysterical. Uh, People were jumping into boats. There were not enough boats. There are pictures from the time showing people just jumping into the sea, asking to be picked up by flimsy fishing boats that were leaving the port. Um, Almost all of them reached as refugees Gaza. They are actually now in Gaza. When people talk today about the people of Gaza, many of them were my ex-neighbors. You know, people who actually lived in my neighborhood together peacefully for many years and were forced to leave during those fateful times. Could I ask a question here? I have Jewish friends who I've asked about the Nakba, the Palestinians who were forced to flee their homes. And what I've been told by really good friends of mine is that they left due to hysteria but not actual violence being perpetrated upon them. What you just said, Dalit, leads me to think that you at least are aware of violence being perpetrated upon them. Oh, my God, this is not just me. I mean, I grew up hearing a lot of stories. I mean, I grew up in the Israeli educational system, hearing a lot of stories. Many of them were not just they left because of hysteria. It was they left as kind of a conspiracy to come back and destroy us. And there are all these very uh, vicious stories. But the truth of the matter is, and, and you don't need a lot in order to understand that my family also left that area. My mother's family lived in the same neighborhood, and they also lift because when you have warfare and by the way the warfare was mostly against the british this is something also i didn't know it's the irgun militia were fighting the british troops not the palestinians but when you have warfare and when you have constant bombardment you don't want to be there not with your family you know civilians are not soldiers they shouldn't be at war they move away they go to their family elsewhere if they can whoever can leaves and, of course, people of more means will leave earlier. So that's normal. That's normal. You don't forfeit your property or your rights by leaving, ever. That doesn't make any sense. And there are international laws to that matter about the rights of civilians. More than that, I, I want to say, tell you another story. I grew up being afraid of Palestinians. And as Sandra said, 20% of the population of Israel is Palestinian. But there is very serious segregation. I mean, we don't go to the same schools, maybe one or two in the entire country bring Jews and Palestinians together. So I never got to meet Palestinians, really, maybe as day laborers. That's all. That's all. It's always about how much they hate us and they want to throw us into the sea. That's a story I always, I always heard. You know, they, they will throw us into the sea. I heard it so many times, it became something ingrained in my mind. But what pictures of Palestinians in 1948 jumping into the Mediterranean Sea because just a week earlier there was the massacre of Diryat by members of Jewish militias that was specifically designed to scare people and tell them, if you don't leave, we will massacre you. It was very effective. 
I understood where this myth came from. We as Israeli Jews are afraid that Palestinians will do to us what we actually did to them. We actually did throw them into the sea. So, of course, we will always be afraid that they will come back to do the same to us. Thank you. So, moving from an understanding of the time of the Nakba, I'd love to hear how both of you became engaged and began working for justice and Palestinian solidarity. And, Sandra, I'd love for you to start, if you're willing, to just talk a little bit about that. So, I'm one of those privileged Palestinians who has a passport. So many of us do not. I'm the daughter of U.S. citizens. I was born in the U.S. My father came from the West Bank in the 60s. My mother was born in the U.S., the daughter of Palestinian immigrants to the U.S. And I grew up in Florida in a very warm, extended family where being a Palestinian was a very normal thing. And I say that because, unfortunately, being Palestinian and feeling normal in this country is a luxury. It's just never a given. We're demonized in the media. We're made to believe that we are anti-Semitic. We're made to believe that we're a violent people. We're made to believe that we're people that keep missing opportunities. And that identity follows you around, even with a strong family base that gives you your culture, gives you that undying love. You still tend to internalize some of these things that are all around you. Your ability to be proud of your identity is questioned in many places. So it wasn't until I was much older. I grew up in a, like I said, in a very loving home where, you know, I didn't know what peanut butter and jelly was. I only knew Palestinian food. I only knew Palestinian ways of doing things. We were very sheltered in our cocoon of, of an extended family raised by a grandmother who lived with us with, you know, uncles and aunts and cousins all around. It wasn't until I went to university that I realized that being Palestinian was controversial. And I found myself speaking out as a, as a proud Palestinian that I was and being labeled all those things that I mentioned before, being labeled an extremist, being na- labeled violent, being labeled anti-Semitic. And why? Simply because I spoke of Palestinians as normal people deserving of rights. I remember at the University of Florida, a student in one of my classes told me that my kofiya, which is the black and white check scarf that I was wearing, made her uncomfortable. That's a symbol of my identity. If I were the person I am today, I would have told her that her racism made me uncomfortable, but I wasn't that confident person at, at a young age. I began to question if my identity were somehow wrong. If I began to internalize some of those perceptions of myself that I, I carry with me today that I have to constantly fight against. In 2012, I was I tried to go back to the West Bank where I have family. I was trying to attend a delegation and attend my cousin's wedding that was happening there. When I arrived at the airport in Tel Aviv, I was asked to present my passport, obviously. But upon presenting my passport, was asked, tell me the name of your father. Tell me the name of your grandfather. And when I said those beautiful Arab names, I was immediately put aside into what is referred to as the Arab room, interrogated for over eight hours, and then eventually put in prison overnight and deported back to the U.S. by Israel. Oh, my God. I remember at the time having those thoughts of, well, maybe I did do something wrong. Maybe there is something about me that is dangerous. But these, these are the things that creep into your head as you're constantly being, yeah, pushed. You're being pushed in those directions. It was much later that I realized that those messages were coming up in unconscious ways. 
But my message is very clear, you know, that I'm, I'm asking for equal rights. I'm asking for full dignity. I'm asking for a return of people who were forced out of their homes, finding a place in this world. There are many Palestinians that do not have passports. There are many Palestinians that do not have the right to work in the countries that are hosting them. After seven decades, we're simply saying enough is enough. Palestinians don't have anything in their DNA that requires a hatred of Jews. That's not part of who we are. As Dalit mentioned, you know, Yaffa was a cosmopolitan city of, of Christians, Muslims, and Jews. And what I always understood from my father-in-law was that his greatest times were traveling to Tel Aviv to meet with Jewish friends, to listen to Jewish bands that were playing there. I mean, his, his life was integrated in that way. There's nothing in the history of the two peoples that says that we can't be equal and that there can't be self-determination for two peoples in one land. That's what I advocate for. I advocate for a right of return, for full justice for the refugees, for full equality for Palestinians, and for an end to this military occupation that is really destroying the Palestinian people, but I would also say destroying Israelis, Israeli Jews who serve in this army, who are addicted to this kind of violence. So it was through that process of fighting my own insecurities and finding assurance in, in the way that I speak about these issues that I became an advocate for Palestinian rights. If I can invite you, Delete, to share a few words. Obviously, you're living in the USA, even though you're an Israeli citizen, grew up there. How common are your perceptions amongst the people, the Jews of Israel specifically? Is this common knowledge, or is it the same way that people in the U.S. choose to not be aware of the wars, the governments we've overthrown, all of that? Is it that kind of a perspective? Because all the Israelis I've met have been really nice people, and actually all the Palestinians I've met have been really nice people, and it's just so hard to believe that some Someone who would choose to believe in lies. So w what is the perspective of the people you grew up with? Can I interject really briefly? This weekend, I had the privilege of accompanying Denise Altvader, who's our co-worker at AFSC, who is Wabanaki and does workshops on decolonization and colonization. And she spoke to young friends this weekend about the history of genocide, both cultural and physical genocide of Native peoples. She talked about the doctrine of discovery and what, and what these young people said is, why didn't people tell us? I mean, and that was what they said. And so I think that I would draw parallels between the lack of knowledge of U.S. citizens and U.S. people who live in the United States to our own colonial history and our own relationship to indigenous people in the United States. That, I mean, it may be a distraction, but I think it's actually very relevant. But Delete, I'd love to hear your story <laughs> I think that people living here in the U.S. can understand the Israeli frame of mind very well. It's not that different from the frame of mind of white Americans that we are so familiar with. Unlike the history of genocide of indigenous people in this country, I think that Israelis have less excuses. Uh, I think that Israel is such a tiny country that everything is on top of each other. And as Sandra and I started sharing our stories, it was clear that they intersect in more than one place. And, and that's the usual situation. So it's very hard not to know. 
also the dispossession and expulsion of Palestinians did not end in 1948, you know, just like the dispossession of indigenous people in this country didn't end ever. It is ongoing and it's ongoing in a very overt and, and violent forms, uh, for example, in the Nakab, in the South Desert or in the Jordan Valley. Families are being evicted today, tomorrow, next week, every day. Because they are Palestinian and, and in their place they build other towns that are for Jews only. So this is an ongoing Nakba and I think it's impossible to live in Israel and not know about it. On the other hand, what happens with the silencing mechanisms that we live in is that people are swept away in their own problems and in their own issues and under the stresses of capitalism and, and they are made to believe that some things are inevitable. But some things are just there to stay. So I'll give you some examples from my own activism in Israel. When the second intifada started in the end of the year 2000, that's the second Palestinian uprising, I was already an activist, but I was an activist working with women. I was part of the feminist movement in Israel. And I worked with Palestinian women as part of the feminist movement. So I thought of myself as, you know, anti-occupation, for equality, all the good things, yes? for the good things and against the bad things. But that doesn't mean that I knew anything. I mean, I knew some things on paper. I knew that there was a war. I knew that there are refugees and that's terrible. I knew all sorts of things theoretically, but I don't think I actually knew much. Telling you the truth, it's kind of interesting to say. We were demonstrating. Uh, I, was, I was working with the Coalition of Women for Peace at the time that we have launched as a reformulation of an older coalition that brought together Palestinian and Jewish women inside Israel. And we were demonstrating against the extreme violence used by the Israeli military against Palestinian protesters at the time, just like an hour away from where we were. And we were unhappy that our demonstrations were not covered in the news. You know, we felt invisible. But it really wasn't the same as demonstrating on the West Bank. So when, when we were first invited by Palestinians to join them in the occupation on the West Bank, I started learning. This was my, my school. This is where I started learning almost everything that I know today. It was quite a transition. Even just crossing over, you know, going in a Palestinian cab on the West Bank. That was scary, you know, my conditioning that says Palestinians want to kill you. I, I wasn't free of that conditioning. And it was quite interesting to reach the village and find out that people there were so happy to see us. I mean, I mean they were competing, who will invite us over for lunch and who will serve us tea. And I've never felt so loved in the Tel Aviv street demonstrating. I mean, usually people would just spit at us and throw things, you know, they would throw apples and, and bottles. So here we are in a place where people throw flowers and we are part of a popular uprising, you know, when the entire community goes out to demonstrate, empty-handed, you know, carrying nothing but banners in front of an army. And the army, the same army I have spent three years of my life in, I was a soldier, like many, and I think almost all Israeli Jews, the same army that I grew to think of as like, you know, the army, yeah, everybody goes to the army, blah, blah, blah. It's like something you see, it's like the scouts, yes? Suddenly, that army was shooting at me. I had nothing to compare this experience to. You know, children, women, the school children, everybody's going out saying we want to be able to live our lives and to manage our own lives. We don't want that foreign occupation on our land that takes everything that we own 
every day, and they send out the army to shoot us, live fire. This demonstration started with the beginning of the construction of the separation or apartheid war on the West Bank. And that was really a very important transitional moment in my political growth. So there started this nonviolent popular movement from the villages along the line of that wall on the West Bank that invited Israelis like myself to join them in those demonstrations and in a peace camp and later in nonviolent demonstrations and I have never understood what occupation was until I spent a day in one of those villages. The word occupation is such a clean word, but once you understand what it means, you understand how dangerous it is to all of us. And when I say all of us, I actually don't mean just Israelis. I mean all of us. You have the idea here that you can manage by force a civilian population indefinitely without listening to any of their representation or needs. You know, it's like, of course, no democracy. And when you do that consistently over time, over many, many years to other populations, then why not other populations that live inside your country and treat them the same way? And we see that in the U.S. and we see that in Israel, where suddenly Israel also polices population inside Israel that are not Jewish. For example, refugees or asylum seekers from Africa as well as Palestinians inside Israel. Israel uses a special force called the border police to police these areas of the country, these neighborhoods. The border police is a part of the military. So this militarization of the police or policization of the military, it's a very dangerous trend and we see it in the U.S. today. And I need to be clear about something. I think in the U.S. the perception way too often is simply that this is a Jewish versus Muslim conflict. But as you've already mentioned, Sandra, there's plenty of Christians who are there too. Is this uniform? When you just mentioned, Dalit, you mentioned that any foreigners or any non-Jews, is it true that Christians are treated the same or differently than Muslims in this system? This is a little bit hard to explain because the U.S. setting of what is religion is different than the Israeli-Jewish Zionist formulation. Growing up, the word Jewish was not used to describe a religion. In fact, I grew up in a fiercely secular community and family. And, and Zionism in, historically has also been a fiercely secular movement. It now has some religion. It always had religious branches, but now it has some dominant religious branches. But Judaism was not considered a religion. So the right dichotomy would be between the Jewish national movement, thinking of Judaism as an ethnic and a national group, versus other national movements, in this case the Palestinian national movement. And the Palestinian national movement historically has always included people of different faiths, even Jews, which is kind of surprising for people. I think even the Palestine Liberation Organization has Jewish members. So the Palestinian national movement includes Muslims and Christians and actually also Samaritans who are not Muslim or Christian. They are part of the Palestinian national body as well as some Jews. So think of it as a 19th century nationalism. That would be a better setting for understanding this conflict. So can we transition from that? I mean, this is incredible context and incredible stories. And I would love for us to transition from that to your involvement in activism now, where you think it's important to place energy, what you see as making a difference, and yeah. what you think is hopeful in terms of transitioning so I, from the situation. 
So maybe I should just continue with my line through the Altamimi and bring it yes. to PDS. Yes, yeah, something like that. Going to those demonstrations on the West Bank was my school, as I said. And one of the things I've learned is more about who we are and how easy it is for Israeli Jews to go around the world and talk about possible solutions and, you know, how we need uh, one state or two states or three states or five states or how many states. And it's so easy because we are so privileged because we can travel back and forth into the West Bank and into, into Europe and to the U.S. and speak as people whose voices are recognized as Western voices and therefore somewhat, I don't know, more legitimate and more trustworthy than people of color. And working in that anti-war movement on the West Bank taught me that the only way for us ever hoping to change the present disparity of power is by recognizing that the movement to liberate Palestinians is a Palestinian movement. And therefore that we actually don't know anything about what Palestinians need. We have to shut up and listen. <laughs> And what does it mean? You know, what does it mean for white people who are so trained to think that our voices are so important to learn how to do that and to learn how to take Palestinian leadership and follow Palestinian leadership and learn from it and learn from the deep lessons of a people that have lived under occupation for so long or lived as dispossessed for so long? And what do they need from us? And as part of that, in 2005, came a call from Palestinian civil society, the famous BDS call, the call on people of conscience around the world to use tools such as boycott divestment sanctions on Israel until it complies with international standards of human rights. Specifically, the goals are kind of the minimum agreed upon goals among the entire multitude and diversity of Palestinian civil society, including Palestinians under occupation, so asking for an end to the Israeli occupation, Palestinians who live inside Israel, so that's the demand for equality, full equality and full civil rights. And the third part of Palestinian people living in diaspora is for them to have the right to return. That's what we have discussed earlier in this conversation. So these are the three demands. And that call went out to people of conscience all around the world, including Israelis. There is a specific part of the call that targets, addresses Israelis of conscience, which we hope to be. And the call was signed by over 170 different Palestinian civil society organizations, including Muslims and Christians and youth and women and uh, communists and the Islamists. And, you know, people who usually do not agree with each other on anything. So this is really the very, very easy to understand call because it is a call for non-cooperation. Non-cooperation meaning stop supporting the things you don't agree with. Don't buy the products of a company that consistently, over time, is supporting the military occupation in Palestine. Not if you don't agree with that military occupation. You cannot say you don't agree with it and then continue collaborating with it. That's the idea. It's very, very easy. And in fact, as we know, there is a very long Quaker tradition of such non-cooperation with evil and with violence. And this builds upon it. So... For me at the time, I was working with the Coalition of Women for Peace, as I described before, a feminist organization that uses uh, consensus decision-making. So we started the conversation of what does that call mean to us? This is a call for action. What kind of action can we take? We were very clear that it is not our job to debate the call. I mean, this is a call addressed to us. The only thing we can debate is what is our response? 
how do we respond as people of conscience? And our response at the time was to set up a research project called Who Profits from the Occupation, using our privileges as Israeli Jews who can travel and ask questions and get answers and study the economy of the occupation in order to provide more information out there to the movement of what are we talking about? Who actually profits from this occupation and how can we take on these big corporations that make the occupation last longer and prevent us from taking it down? So that was our action at the time. Over 10 years have passed since then. The, the call came out in 2005, and Who Profits started in 2007. You know, now we are in 2018, and maybe it's pathetic, maybe it's inspiring. I don't know, but I find myself doing the exact same thing today <laughs> as I did 10 years ago. <laughs> Through doing this work as a volunteer in a grassroots feminist organization, I and my colleagues learned how to do this work and kind of became the experts on the economy of the occupation. And now I work with the American Friends Service Committee here in the U.S., and I try to do similar research. So to expand what we know about such companies and to also extend the research to other companies or sometimes the same companies that are involved in the prison industry in this country, in providing services to prisons, in doing uh, private probation in this country, an abomination in its own right, in deporting immigrants, in maintaining the U.S.-Mexico border war. So all these different aspects aspects of state violence, they have something in common, which is all about occupation. It's all about treating civilians as if they have absolutely no rights and we should govern them using the force of violence, using our you know, military or militarized police and their lives do not matter. Yes, we can just you know, put them in a cage indefinitely. It doesn't matter. Things like that. So, we want to know where this intersects our economy and where can we influence corporations in changing the policies and stepping away from it. Much of this work is still on Palestine-Israel and much of it is no longer on Palestine-Israel because through doing this work, we have learned a lot. We have learned how companies really are very susceptible to public pressure and, you know, they only care about profit anyhow. So all you need to do is suggest that they might lose money if they continue doing that <laughs> and then they step away. And we have had a lot of victories. I say we, we as a movement, you know, I'm taking credit, but this is, this is fun. This is part of the fun of being part of a movement. We got big companies, big, big corporations to step away from their harmful business activities in the Israeli occupation, which made them better too. You know, it didn't destroy them. It just made them better companies and I think made them also more sustainable in the long run. Sandra, I want to turn to you and I'd be really interested in hearing your thoughts about the BDS ban and, and the pushback, but also your approaches to activism, where you find there's energy, where you find there's movement, where you find your energy is most productively used in this struggle. Thank you, Lucy. I'm working with the Adala Justice Project. We are the U.S. advocacy organization attached to Adala, the legal center for Arab minority rights in Israel that's based in Haifa. Adala has been operating for 20 years, challenging these laws that Dalit mentioned, the annexation laws. A new law, another law, is the Jewish nation-state law that would really entrench uh, the Jewish character of the state. These are laws that Adala has been fighting in the Israeli Supreme Court. So Palestinians taking cases up to the Israeli Supreme Court in a very strategic way to try to litigate cases in a way that maybe they win and they, they might be able to keep people, villages erect in the Negev and Nakab. 
or they may know they're going to lose, but they are cases that expose the nature of the state. So we often hear this idea that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state. You often hear this in policy circles here in the U.S., Israel, the Jewish state. But what does that mean? How can you have 20% of your population be Palestinian, be non-Jewish, and be democratic at the same time? What does that mean for non-Jews who live in the state? Another great thing you hear in D.C. all the time and in our media is a peace process for two states, for two people. And how is that possible when we've heard just now about the legalization of the settlements, the continued annexation of more and more land that is to become the Palestinian state? How is that possible? We hear about a green line, the green line being, you know, the line between Palestinian territories and Israel proper. But the legal moves by the state have erased that green line. And really, all you have is a differentiation in the law based on your identity, not territory. If you are a Palestinian living inside Israel, you have different laws that apply to you. If you're a Palestinian living under military occupation, you have a set of laws that apply to you. If you're an Israeli Jewish settler living in the West Bank, you have a very favorable law overseeing your existence. So these ideas that we have in our media, in our consciousness here in the U.S., and what we hear from policymakers, they're all myths. They don't exist. So what can we push for? I think that what Adala is trying to do and the Adala Justice Project here in the U.S. is really try to expose the nature of the state and really try to say, what does it mean to be democratic while maintaining certain rights for Jews only? How is that possible? And how do we reincorporate this idea, this vision of equality? I'm often accused of advocating for the destruction of the state of Israel through my advocacy for equality. My response is, if equality is what destroys the state, what does that say about the state? These are really basic issues, you know, that we're talking about one law, one people, one way of thinking of who lives in the land and not privileging one group over another. What Dalit talked about was the psychology, right? That, you know, Israeli Jews have these ideas that what they did to the Palestinians might happen to them. And so how do we get past the psychology and move on to something that is going to be better for everyone? I think this is the vision that we have to be putting out I don't care what political paradigm comes to be. Self-determination for me and for Palestinians, in my mind, means freedom. That can happen in many political paradigms. If that's in two states, if that's in three states, in five states or no states, wonderful. But there is increasingly, you're finding, a move away from nationalism as the only way for self-determination. That self-determination could happen outside of a nation-state And I think that that's what's really hopeful, that we could just base this on a shared vision for equality and dignity for all the people living in that state, in that land. Well, all three of you are doing such great work in different places. Could I ask you to just call out a website each that you would like to send people to? Lucy, why don't you start? Where should people go to follow up on the issues that are leading your life right now? 
We have created a portal that includes lots of different ways to engage, particularly for Quakers, and it's at afsc.org slash friendsengage, and it, it has education materials. It has these wonderful sections on Israel and Palestine that are five ways to make a difference in this work. It's got a lot of other resources and connects to resources that people can use to learn more and to get more deeply involved. I would also send them to the Quaker Palestine Israel Network website. I serve on the steering committee with Steve Tamari, Sandra's husband and partner, and we do a lot of work to try and get Quakers particularly engaged in this work. And Sandra, where would you like people to go check out? I would love it if people would visit the Adala Justice Project. I'll spell that for you. It's A-D-A-L-A-H justiceproject.org. And you can also visit our parent organization, adala.org. And I serve on the steering committee of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, and that's at uscpr.org. It's just like Quaker-associated folks. I ask for one website, and I get three. (laughs) (laughs) And delete. Oh, I, I will just give you one, which was already mentioned. It is our own website, it is called investigate, afsc.org slash investigate, which is where people can actually scan their own pension investments. Uh, soon we are going to have a feature there that will allow you to actually scan mutual funds to see if you're invested in any of those forms of state violence. So you can do something about it. Well, I want to thank all three of you for taking the time today. It's so valuable. I loved the plenary last summer at the Friends General Conference gathering, and it's so important that people are hearing personal experience. It's one thing if I can talk about these things as a person who grew up in Wisconsin. It's another to have someone like you, Sandra, who grew up without peanut butter and jelly. But uh, fortunately, I think you had probably hummus and falafel and other great things. (laughs) I got the better end of the deal. (laughs) (laughs) And Dalit, for you to do the introspection, that's some of the hardest work that anyone can do. So I really want to commend you on doing that and then carrying it out to the rest of the world. And of course, Lucy, your work as a person who brings stories forward to the world and helps us transform it. You've been touching my life daily through Facebook. I want to thank you for all three of you for your work. And thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you. Thank Thank you you very much, Mark. You just heard all kinds of websites from Lucy Duncan, Dalit Baum, and Sandra Tamari, all of which are on the NordenSpiritRadio.org website, of course along with all kinds of other good things, like a place to post comments and the super important Donate button. First, support your local community radio station, a vital service for raising the local American voice, then help out Northern Spirit Radio. And a great big thanks to Catherine Thomas for production help today, and I'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 